Welcome to episode 88 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark Abel, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, family physician as well and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We are recording on the day before our... I believe to be our last continuing education program with the, it's a virtual uh, session with the Arizona Academy of Family Physicians. The four of us plus Santina Wheat and Gary Ferencik will be uh, presenting. And the second thing is that we are recording on the 60th birthday of one of our commentators. Happy birthday, Mark. Happy birthday, Mark. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I wondered if you knew that it was my birthday today somehow. Um, <laughs> so yeah, in this podcast, we're going to highlight poems, patient-oriented evidence that matters. To get all of the poems, you need to subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus. You get a poem in your email every day so you can keep up with all the new research for uh, primary care physicians, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters, thousands of interactive decision support tools. Find it at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, <clears throat> and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you want to get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians, just go to IAFP.com, click on the online IAFP education webpage, and find our podcast this week, Antivirals in Kids Hospitalized with Flu, DAPT for Secondary Stroke Prevention, Safety and Effectiveness of No-Test Medical Abortions, and the Harms of Overtreating Older Persons with Type 2 Diabetes. Kate, take it away. Sure. So this article that I have today will hopefully not be of any use to any of us this year, but unfortunately probably will be. So this was a prospective cohort study from Campbell and colleagues published in Pediatrics from this current month. It looked at the effectiveness of antiviral treatments for influenza in hospitalized children. So current recommendations do support the use of neuraminidase inhibitors such as acetalmivir, that's uh, Tamiflu. Tamiflu. Thank you. Acetalmivir, that's Tamiflu, for the treatment of children with influenza in, in, in the inpatient setting. But most of the data behind this recommendation actually comes from extrapolation from adult studies and from outpatient studies from children in the outpatient setting. So this study was specifically looking at length of stay in hospitalized children with influenza. They used data from a large multi-system influenza surveillance network, and they limited their analysis to children who were likely to have a slightly longer length of stay. They had two cohorts, children with medical comorbidities, such as cardiovascular or neurologic disease or prematurity, among others. It's worth noting that asthma was specifically excluded because when they looked at it, they found that children with asthma only did not have an increased length of stay, as well as kids who were admitted to the ICU. That was their other cohort. About 54% of all patients admitted with influenza had at least one medical condition. And after applying some other exclusions, they had a cohort of about 309 patients. About half were male, about half were over the age of five. Only about 48% had received an annual flu vaccine. Of that cohort, 82% got an antiviral drug. The vast majority did get Tamiflu. Those who got the antivirals had a substantially shorter length of stay. The mean was three and a half days versus 4.6 days. There was no benefit if antiviral agents were started greater than or equal to three days after symptom onset, consistent with what we know about prescribing these medications in any setting. 
The ICU cohort spanned three flu seasons. That was to increase the the total number of patients who were in this cohort compared to one flu season for the uh, for the other cohort. So in the ICU cohort, about a third of patients were between ages one and four. Another third were less than a year old, leaving a third in that greater than five, five to 17-year-old category. 72% had at least one chronic medical condition, and 37% had received a seasonal flu vaccine. 74% of the ICU cohort received an antiviral drug. So here, too, they found an increase, sorry, a decreased length of stay in the group who got the antiviral drugs. This is a, a couple of cohort studies. It is right now the best data that we have suggesting that antiviral drugs given in the inpatient setting reduce the length of stay, mainly disease-oriented outcomes, certainly with some patient-oriented impacts. Uh, my kid, I would want them out of the hospital as soon as possible if they had to be there for any reason. Um, and the bottom line is that acetamivir does reduce the length of stay in hospitalized children, as far as we can tell, uh, who have medical comorbidities and or critical illness due to influenza. Henry, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, this is an interesting um, study, and it has some of the limitations of database studies that you um, alluded to already. Um, I, I do want to point out that influenza typically kills about 36,000 people every year, and that has been the case for over the past decade. And at least during this pandemic, influenza was an afterthought, given that there was you know, more than an order of magnitude in terms of deaths from COVID. So, um, so influenza has been pushed to the um, back burner a little bit, but has been getting more attention because this year people are uh, genuinely concerned concerned about a, a rise in um, influenza as people unmask and head back into the schools and like. So this is something that even though you were hopeful um, that we might not need it, I have a feeling that we, uh, that we will. Um, one of the limitations of database studies is not just um, the potential for cherry picking the comorbid conditions um, and the ability to only determine associations and not necessarily a causal association, a causal link. Um, they also typically don't talk about severity of comorbid conditions. And so is it possible that those children who are in the ICU who received antivirals also happen to have more severe comorbid conditions than those who didn't. And so there may be other plausible explanations for which randomized trials could really be the only way to, to address. Hey, John, what do you think? Nothing really to add. Uh, good commentary, Henry. Yeah, I, I would add that the um, this is consistent with the randomized trial data that shows about a one-day benefit at best. And you're probably going to see potentially a little more benefit in kids who are sicker. I, I, you know, my concern is that this is uh, a pretty narrowly, uh, you know, ch selected group of kids with comorbidities or in the ICU. It, it shouldn't necessarily be taken to apply to, you know, every kid with the flu, that kind of thing. So I think we, we, we in Japan are the countries that give Tamiflu the most to kids and adults. And in other countries around the world, they just say, it's the flu, you'll feel better you know, in four or five days get over it. And so um, I, I think it, we, we are kind of medicalizing. Obviously, a kid who's hospitalized, I would throw Tamiflu at him as well. But um, I think it's, uh, we don't want to over, overstate this. Henry, you got a quiz for us? Yeah. So this quiz asks the question, which statement about Dr. Mary Edwards Walker is true? A, 
She was the first woman hired as a commissioned surgeon during the American Civil War. B, her surgical outcomes were comparable to those of male surgeons of the time. C, after the Civil War, she was elected to the U.S. Senate. And D, she's the only woman ever to have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Stay tuned. Hmm. I don't know if this is a trick question or not, Henry, but we'll see. Henry, you're going to tell us about um, DAPT for strokes. Yeah, so this study asks whether dual therapy with ticagrelor or Berlinta and aspirin is more effective than monotherapy or dual therapy with aspirin and any other antiplatelet agent in the secondary prevention of strokes. Okay, this was uh, from Stroke in September by Balint and Company. I got to start off by saying I did not like this paper, okay? And you'll you'll see why. Okay? So they they this was a government funded study, okay? Um just just put that into context. Um they wanted to look at the relative effectiveness of dual antiplatelet therapy and they were specifically they specifically talked up ticagrelor, but as part of their um search and they looked at multiple databases, uh that they tried to identify studies that had 30-day stroke outcomes of any of the P2Y2 antiplatelet agents, ticagrelor, clopidogrel or prasugrel or aspirin monotherapy compared with combination. Now, to get in, every one of the studies had to also include a ticagrelor treatment arm, okay? So after they collected all of these um, studies, um, they found that they were pretty well low risk of bias. Um, There were 26 trials, almost 125,000 participants, um, varying doses, so there's a little bit of mess in there. They go on and do a network meta-analysis to, te- to evaluate this relative um, uh, comparative effectiveness. Now, I don't know enough about network meta-analyses. John and our when we did our master's program together, these had not yet been invented. And so I have to confess, I don't know a great deal about the statistical underpinnings, but I wonder if including a ticagrelor as a requirement sort of undermines some of the statistical assumptions that we typically um, do. That's a little bit of a nerdy thing, and I'll see if Mark has any insights about this. The, the, The beauty of a network meta-analysis is that it allows you to do relative effectiveness in the absence of head-to-head trials. But because this required a treatment wing with ticagrelor, there was a head-to-head component. What did they find? Well, it turns out that monotherapy was really not very effective in secondary stroke prevention. And oh, by the way, it turns out that dual therapy with clopidogrel and aspirin was actually slightly more effective than ticagrelor. Okay. Um, yes, there was a bit more um, bleeding as a result of this, and none of the regimens actually um, decreased all-cause mortality. And they didn't present the data in any way that you could actually calculate numbers needed to treat. So, you know, this study, it looks, smells, and tastes like a drug company-sponsored study, even though it was funded by a government agency and none of the authors declared any conflict of interest. It's limited. It doesn't really, it's not a real comprehensive uh, meta-analysis of all of the other antiplatelet agents. And so even though I think the deck was stacked in favor of ticagrelor, it turns out that dual therapy with clopidogrel was a little bit more effective. Yeah, so um, I'm 
teaching a course on meta-analysis, uh, a doctoral seminar this semester at the University of Georgia. So I have a lecture on my syllabus. It's a new course on network meta-analysis. So I better figure this out. So if you ask me next <laughs> month, I'll know a lot more about it. <clears throat> I'm, I'm basically one lecture ahead of the students at this point. Uh, barely. <laughs> so, um, so in any case, uh, this, I, I think I haven't looked at, I haven't read this study, but I think having an requiring a, 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 a common arm like Tyco Greller only would help you do the network meta analysis because it gives you, everybody is, has one thing in common. So I think that potentially helps you. And then with a the network meta analysis, they typically do both direct and indirect comparisons. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to look at both of those and the way the data are reported for a network meta analysis is harder to interpret. Usually they give you a ranked list of most likely to be effective and least likely to be effective. In this case, I would say both of the DAPTs that you mentioned, either Tychogrel or Clopidogrel with aspirin, I, I would say they're similar. The relative risks are very close and the confidence intervals overlap a lot. So I, would, I wouldn't say that one was better than the other. I would say most likely they're, they're about the same. And so it's the usual trade-off, you know, uh, would you rather have a stroke or a major bleed? And um, I'll, I'll take a major bleed. So um, anyway, that, that would be my take on it. Um, so Kate, anything? Yeah, I think we talked about a different DAPT article a few weeks ago. Um, and the, the takeaway at that time was that the, the stroke recommendations have been updated based on on some some of the, this newer literature to, to tell us. Again, these are people at very high risk of stroke, right? Because they've, they've just had a stroke. Um, and like you said, Mark, we're, we're looking to, to prevent the second stroke, not prevent the first stroke. Um, and so the recommendations are, if I remember this correctly, to, to start DAPT for at least 21 days and maybe as long as 90 days. Um, but exactly where in that range we stop it isn't isn't exactly clear. Um, yep. But I, I think that I, I tend to agree that the difference between exactly what kind we choose it looks a little a, a little bit uncertain still. And I'm not sure this is going to be enough to make us say it, it's definitely going to be um, uh, it's going to be clopidogrel over to Cagrelor. Um, I do want to know if you're open to having three podcast co-hosts in your in your network meta-analysis seminar. <laughs> Sounds like we're all <laughs> going to need it. Yeah, yeah, we're, that'd be fine. Yeah, sure, sure. We're, we're excellent listeners. I'll invite, I'll, I'll, record, the, I'll record the session. <laughs> um, Sounds good. If you ever need to, if you're having difficulty sleeping, then, you know, <laughs> um, so, okay, I, well, Mark, I do, I do have some concerns about this because it really doesn't take the perspective of a generalist physician they are looking at patients with high risk for vascular disease, but then the outcome is only stroke in this one. Mm -hmm. But we're interested in, in repeat heart attacks. We're interested in peripheral arterial disease as well. So they've kind of cherry picked one outcome. And these patients didn't, uh, this is not secondary stroke prevention. Uh, some of these people had other risk factors, but had not had a stroke. So this is a bit different from the other studies. And I just find this very confusing and found the study not, not to be very helpful in these decisions about DAP. Yeah, I think that you, I think there is some um, argument for individualizing these decisions. So if, if you have somebody who's at a particularly high risk for bleeding, uh, then you might only do the 21 days. If they're low risk for bleeding and high risk for stroke, you might go for 60 to 90 days, but then switch over to monotherapy at that time. Um, so I've got the next poem. Uh, this was um, a 
cohort study in the British Journal of OB-GYN from Aiken and colleagues, Effectiveness, Safety, and Acceptability of No-Test Medical Abortion Termination of Pregnancy Provided via Telemedicine, a national cohort study. And I thought this was uh, interesting, different study, and, and very relevant to how you know, practice is changing all over the world, including in the U.S. So this study looked at about 22,000 patients treated before and about 30,000 treated after the implementation of a fully remote protocol for providing medical abortion at gestational age less than 10 weeks in the UK. The medications were oral mifepristone, 200 milligrams, followed by 800 micrograms of misoprostol uh, one to two days later. They could give a second dose of misoprostol three to four hours after the first dose if expulsion hadn't occurred. In the before times, women would attend a clinic for this assessment, have an in-person assessment and an ultrasound. The remote services used telephone or video call, and they were implemented because of the pandemic from April 2020 through June 2021. And of course, there was no imaging <clears throat> or in-person assessment. It was all done remotely. Women were eligible uh, only if they were at low risk for ectopic and had a last menstrual period consistent with a gestational age less than 10 weeks. Meds were either sent by mail or the person could come into the clinic and retrieve them. Uh, they collected de-identified data from the EMR six weeks after the study period ended. They found that the waiting time from first contact to dispensing the medication was an average of 10.7 days before and 6.5 days after the remote protocol, so about four days faster, which is good. Uh, successful medical abortion defined as expulsion of the intrauterine pregnancy without surgical intervention was similar in both groups, 98.2% before and 98.8% after. Major adverse events were fortunately rare in both groups. Rates of hemorrhage requiring transfusion 0.04% before, 0.02% after. There were no cases of infection requiring hospitalization, major surgery, or death in either group. The, incident, the incidence of ectopic was 0.2% in both groups. So compared to traditional in-person services, <clears throat> excuse me, medical abortion at less than 10 weeks gestation was at least as safe and effective after implementing a telemedicine protocol without requiring ultrasound testing uh, that decreased the waiting time and very similar outcomes. Kate? Yeah, so I think this, uh, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about safety um, that have led to regulation of all kinds of abortion services, not just telemedicine abortion services. This study, you know, if people wanted to use it to deregulate telemedicine and other kinds of abortion services, we could. I'm not sure that this is going to influence people who, you know, are motivated to um, to keep those regulations in place. Uh, but certainly this is, you know, compelling evidence that, you know, it seems to be very safe and very effective and, you know, possibly leads to even safer care in terms of um, getting people the, the services that they're looking for even faster. Um, and, you know, knowing that, that that faster is probably safer in this case. Um, the, again, the safety uh, data here is is pretty compelling. Um, that that the rates of of surgical intervention and the rates of hemorrhage are are very low. Um, and it, you know, it also speaks a little bit to some of the telemedicine. Um, you know, concerns that people have had about all kinds of not just OB services, um, but just telemedicine services in general, um, that this is, you know, other evidence that that what we're doing is safe um, and that people can have, you know, even pretty advanced, uh, you know, care of all kinds, especially, you know, like you said, in the before times, um, people who just didn't have access to 
OB care, gynae care, or any other kind of, of health care um, could probably, you know, get those kinds of services safely and effectively. Yeah, thanks, Kate. John, any, any comments? Very, very interesting and helpful study. I note that it comes from the UK, and I, I wonder if telemedicine is being used regularly for medical abortion services in the United States. Of course, it's very much a political hot potato in the United States as well. But I think this uh, safety data, as Kate said, is, is very helpful. Yeah, the UK, as I think our listeners know, has a much more centralized, uh, organized health system. Um, a lot of uh, screening and prevention services are centrally administered. It makes it easier to have a set protocol, to follow a protocol, to have an algorithm that is, is consistently followed. Whereas in the U.S., it's really down to individual practices to implement this, and they might be they might vary in the fidelity to some of these recommendations and you know some of the restrictions. And and so uh, I think it might look it might. I think it would probably work just as well in the U.S., but um, I think the U.K. gives us a good model for how to think about <clears throat> doing these things a little bit differently. Um, John, I think uh, we have to hear from you about older patients with type 2 diabetes. Okay, the clinical question these investigators attempted to answer was, what are the risks of overtreatment in patients 70 years or older with type 2 diabetes? And by overtreatment, in this case, we mean overtreatment of the blood sugar. This is a cohort study, not a randomized trial. Uh, this came from a database of almost 23,000 patients, once again in the UK, and these are general practice patients. The authors identified 6,288 patients at least 70 years old who had type 2 diabetes and who had three consecutive A1Cs less than seven, less than 7%. So these older patients had really pretty tight control, in fact, tighter than we generally recommend, at least in this country, for type 2 diabetes. 90% of these patients were treated with the sulfonylurea. That's an important factor here. The authors then matched these patients with up to three patients of a similar age, sex, and duration of diabetes who did not have such tight control. In other words, they didn't have the hemoglobin A1Cs of less than seven, and who were not receiving a sulfonylurea or insulin. The patients who had tight control were 2.5 times more likely than the matched control patients to be hospitalized for severe hypoglycemia, though the overall mortality rates, which are generally high in this age range at any rate, were not different. So there was no difference in mortality when you made that comparison. If you look at it over 10 years of treatment, about 14% of those patients over 70 will be hospitalized for severe hypoglycemia. So definitely there's some harm involved in overtreating these older patients. If you looked at the overtreated patients and focused just on those who were taking insulin or a sulfonylurea, they also had an increased risk of death. So I think this is probably teaching to the choir as we're talking mainly to family physicians and other primary care practitioners. I think we recognize and have recognized for a while that super tight control of type 2 diabetes does not lead to better outcomes and in fact does lead to harm. So this is just a, another reminder uh, that you need to be careful. Uh, it's interesting, the writer of this poem comments that a systematic review 
found that there was a high prevalence of overtreatment of diabetes in nursing homes, especially patients with dementia. So this is a good lesson to those of you who take care of patients in the nursing home. Really don't try to crank that A1C down. That is not going to benefit your patients, your older patients. Uh, Kate? Yeah, I think you touched on some of the, the things that may not be completely consistent between our practices and the practice in the UK. So the high rate of sulfonylurea treatment, which I think, you know, we're seeing less of in places where people are able to afford other kinds of, of medications that may have a lower risk of hypoglycemia. Um, but the overall point is still is still there. We're really not sure, you know, at what point is it okay to stop chasing those aggressive A1C goals? At what point do you start having those conversations? It's just like discontinuing a statin or, or pulling back on, on some of the other meds. Um, you know, do you say, okay, now our goal has always been, you know, between seven and seven and a half. And now we're going to say it's eight to eight and a half. Um, and those are difficult conversations, even though it, it seems to be, you know, definitely safer for the for the patient um, and just shifting that mindset for the clinicians also. Henry. So once again, this is a database study and so it has the usual limitations that we talk about all the time, but it is consistent with many other things that we have seen and we've we've talked about on some of our podcasts that this myth of tight control benefits is largely myth in patients with type 2 diabetes. Uh, multiple systematic reviews have consistently failed to show uh, any benefit f- for any outcome with the possible exception of non-fatal myocardial infarctions. And when you look at individual trials, um, at least one of high-risk individuals had to be terminated early because of excess mortality in the type control group. And so somewhere in our thinking about type 2 diabetes, we think blood sugar, but type 2 diabetes is much more complicated than blood glucose, okay? It is a, it, it's, it requires a whole different theoretical framework for us to really get a full full understanding. Now, if you're really interested in um, some of the, the other details, James McCormack, who is a Canadian pharmacist who is famous for a lot of his musical parodies, uh, gave a serious lecture. It's 28 minutes, and you could go to YouTube and just type in James McCormack and Metformin, and he sort of talks about some of the myth of blood sugar and its association with um, adverse outcomes, at least in absolute terms. And so I would encourage you to be aware of this condition, not so much as an issue of blood sugar, but maybe that there's something else going on. Maybe it's a multi-system inflammatory disorder that requires a whole different approach. Yeah, there's, I, I, I had trouble with the study because, you know, they were, wasn't sure whether it was a study of the harms of sulfonuria or the harms of tight control or both, because it seems like there were two differences between the groups. One was the drugs used to treat diabetes and the other was the control. So, Certainly, don't use sulfonylurea in old people to drive their sugar, their their A1C under seven percent. Um, and I agree. My my personal target for uh, older patients is is always over seven percent. And you know, I'm perfectly happy at seven and a half percent. Yet I have colleagues who are like, "Oh my gosh, we got to get their sugar lower." Well, no, let's let's you know learn from these trials. The advanced trial actually showed exactly this higher mortality in middle-aged and older adults with type 2 diabetes who were uh, placed in a strict control group, higher mortality. So that's 
Um, this is further evidence, so good study. Thanks for bringing it to us. And uh, now we're going to learn about Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. So the quiz asks, which statement about Dr. Mary Edwards Walker is true? A, she was the first woman hired as a commissioned surgeon during the Civil War. B, her surgical outcomes were comparable to those of male surgeons of her time. C, after the Civil War, she was elected to the U.S. Senate. And D, she's the only woman ever to have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, Kate, you know the answer to this. Why do you know the answer? So <laughs> I do know the answer to this. Uh, it, this is just really weird coincidence for me. Um, but uh, do you want the long story here or do you want the short story? Let's go with the short story. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you can tell us the long story. Henry later. always tells a long story, so he's telling you to tell a short story. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, it seems fair, but go ahead. <laughs> so, I um, have volunteered in the past with uh, a with our our local honor flight uh, hub as medical crew, and um, my first airplane trip in since the pandemic um, was on their their most recent flight, which was an all women's honor flight, uh, ninety three uh, women veterans, and so was at the this is now a long story uh, was at the military women's memorial um, on Wednesday. Uh, and there is a display of, uh, Dr. Walker's, uh, life story, including her apparently famous cane, white cane. Mm -hmm. Um, and so happened to, to just read, uh, this whole, uh, story, um, including the fact that she was the only woman ever to have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Great. So if you want to know the full story, uh, the summer issue of Pharos, which is the Alpha Omega Alpha uh, quarterly publication, and I have a link to the article uh, posted in the summary here in our script, it, it really is a fascinating tale. So she graduated from the Syracuse Medical College, apparently the second woman ever to graduate from an American medical school. In 1861, she divorced her husband and went off to Washington, D.C. to try to get a job with the U.S. Army in the Commissioned Corps. However, um, the, she was not hired as a commissioned surgeon, but allowed her to, be, um, uh, to, to work on soldiers because she was a woman. Okay. Um, she was actually very progressive in her approach to patients. And so even predating Pasteur's proof of germ theory, she boiled instruments, she washed hands, she used clean bandages, and actually encouraged her patients to bathe. So as a result of this, her surgical outcomes in terms of infection rates and mortality and amputations were lower than her male compatriots. She actually ended up getting captured and spent several months as a POW in a horrific um, prison camp in, in Richmond. And she wrote multiple uh, letters about those deplorable conditions, including maltreatment and starvation of prisoners. Um, after the war, she worked tirelessly in support of equal rights for women, including women's um, suffrage. In November 1865, she was uh, awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for her service at battles of Bull Run, Chickamauga, and Atlanta, and for her service to the fellow POWs. Here's where the story gets really interesting. In 1917, Congress rescinded her medal, along with others, because she did not engage, quote, in enemy combat. What do you think she did? 
she refused to give her medal back. She said, I will return it over my dead body. And she continued to wear it while giving feminist lectures. In 1977, after an army board noted that if it had not been for her gender, she would have been given a commission and her actions would have been those of a soldier, President Carter reinstated her um, Congressional Medal of Honor. Oh, by the way, she was unsuccessful in any of her attempts at election in the House of Representatives and the Senate. And oh, by the way, as a philatelist, I happened to find this in 1982, the U.S. Postal Service uh, issued a stamp commemorating her um, life. So the correct answer is D, as Kate pointed out. Thank you, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. I can't believe it took you so long to tell the story. It has the trifecta for Henry of medicine, civil war, and stamps. Brings them all together. Right? Oh yes. Jeez. Okay. Well, thanks. That's a great story, and and you know, someone whose history I didn't know, and we should all know uh, about her. Uh, what, a, what an incredibly interesting woman. Um, so, thank you for listening today. Uh, again, if you want to get CME credit, you can go to the online IAFP Education webpage. They have the disclaimer there. You can get a half AMA Category One credit for listening to the podcast. And I hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. We're going to talk to you in a couple of weeks with more primary care updates.